Well, good evening, everyone, on this splendidly English evening. Uh, and welcome to the American section and the rest of you. It seems to be that you've drawn an extraordinary audience for uh, romanticism, Matthew. Uh, I think most of you will know Matt Johnson, but those of you who don't, uh, I would say he's a, a worthy successor, and this uh, probably on this podium to James Dietz and Henry Glassie, who got his PhD here at Penn and certainly fashioned my ideas on medieval archaeology back in the 1970s. And I suspect, to some extent, uh, Matthew's ideas when he studied archaeology at Cambridge during the 1980s, and there where he worked on his dissertation, a contextual study of traditional houses in Western Suffolk from 1400 to 1700. But Matthew is more than someone who studies Western Suffolk, uh, as was, let's say, James Dietz, or indeed Henry Glassie. Uh, he was a lecturer at Sheffield, where, if I may say, I think he was in my position when I went to Rome. He then went on to Lampeter, uh, and then to Durham, where he became professor. And more recently, he's been professor and head of department in arguably one of the major archaeology departments in the world at Southampton. I say that as an alumnus of Southampton, uh, where he walked in the shoes and taught in the shoes of none other than Barry Cunliffe and Colin Renfrew, which is no mean shoes to fill. And as if to fill those shoes, my God, has he published some books. Uh, Housing Culture, Traditional Architecture in the English Landscape, uh, an archaeology of capitalism which has had a profound effect far beyond the field of archaeology. Archaeological theory, uh, which came out in 1999, it's been translated into Spanish, Chinese, Serbian, and is about to go into Turkish, no less, as well as a second edition. Since then, he's written Behind the Castle Gate, From Medieval to the Renaissance, uh, which won, uh, was nominated for an archaeological book prize, and his ideas of landscape, which came out a couple of years ago. I know my distinguished friend Graham Barker said it's been the most important book in landscape archaeology published in the new century. He's working on traditional housing, 1300, traditional houses, 1300 to 1800, everyday life and culture in the English landscape, but in the English countryside. Why is he such an interesting archaeologist to us all? Because frankly, and I think it's an important place to say this, he's someone who's taken many of the ideas of the new archaeology and worked with many ideas of the processualists of the 1980s, fashioned them together within a historical context and reached out in the most uh, eloquent of languages to many different audiences. So it's a great pleasure to welcome Matthew to speak tonight on Lonely as a Cloud. Matthew. First of all, thank you, Richard, for that extremely kind introduction. Um, it is a terrifying thought that I'm in the shoes of Barry Cunliffe and Colin Renfrew. Um, truly awesome, as, as, as they say. Um, and thank you also particularly to Bob Purcell and many other people here today for making me so welcome, for um, putting themselves out to organize this, this visit for me here to um, uh, to, to, to the University of Pennsylvania. It's, it, it's a pleasure to be here. 
and I'm learning a huge amount um, uh, during my two months here. What I want to do today is talk um, about a puzzle or a dilemma that um, came to me very, very early on in my archaeological education. Um, at the age of about 15 or 16, when most of my saner and more rational peers were doing much more fun things like exploring punk rock or chasing members of the opposite sex, I was wandering around the English landscape. Um, I was looking at lonely old churches, um, walking across um, fields, um, uh, exploring ancient trackways, looking at maps and wondering what, how to make sense of what I could see there, um, why places were called Castle Acre, why farmsteads were um, placed in ancient Gothic lettering and labelled Manor House on the map. And so in the years before I went to university, I learned a particular way of doing archaeology. A particular way of doing archaeology which was about particularities. It was about kinks in field boundaries. It was about why this village was slightly different from, from that village. It was about narratives and stories. It was about why um, uh, this church had this particular dedication. It was um, something that was intensely local and, and also in many ways intensely um, um, emotional and meaningful. It was, it was about an emotional engagement with the landscape. When I went to university, to Cambridge, I was told very authoritatively that this approach to archaeology was a waste of time. That um, there were various ways, means, and doing of archaeology, and two traditions in particular um, stood out as, as the only valid ways of doing archaeology. One was to go out into um, very distant parts of the globe and excavate the great civilizations, which I've, I've represented through a, a picture from, from your own galleries, a humanistic um, study of, of the greatness of humankind rather than these little particularities of field boundaries. The second way was, to, uh, the second uh, manner of doing archaeology was to stress that archaeology was a science and that, again, walking along roads, engaging emotionally with the past was, 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 was really by the by, that what we should be doing is working comparatively and scientifically to understand the past. So in my education, I've, I've, been, I've really been brought up with these, these two traditions, that, that um, uh, engagement with the English landscape on the one hand and um, a strongly theorised tradition on the other. And it's worth saying this latter theorised tradition, generalising imperative, I see as a discourse that actually underlies, if you like, the surface froth of theoretical debates. It doesn't matter whether you're a processualist or a post-processualist. This, this emphasis on, on looking at issues across the world and so on is something that I think spans that. So um, the book that I wrote and, and the research that I'm going to talk about today, um, which I've published in, in Ideas of Landscape, was an attempt really to write a book for um, an audience of myself, to, to ask why um, are these two traditions at very great um, distance from one another? What can we learn from that? And perhaps most importantly, how can we, we bring these two, two traditions together?
I'm going to suggest that the origins of the particular intellectual tradition that I've talked about, walking around the landscape, looking at churches, building up narratives, can trace its origins, well, it can trace many points of origin, but I'm going to talk about one in particular, um, namely William Wordsworth. And a book that, for me anyway, has been hugely influential, both on the development of archaeology in the British Isles and in Europe, and uh, also, and as importantly, on, on intellectual and cultural life as a whole. Now, this is not one of Wordsworth's poems. This is actually um, what is arguably the first guidebook published in the English language, Wordsworth's Guide to the Lakes. Now, in the Guide to the Lakes, um, Wordsworth, describe, uh, Wordsworth takes up a very particular metaphor to understand looking at the Lake District, the Lake District in Cumber in the, in the northwest of, of England. He says that he was inspired to write this book when he was visiting um, the Swiss Alps. And he describes um, a scene in a room that he describes pretty similar to the size of this room, in which there's a scale model of the Alps laid out over the ground. And to understand this model, you have to ascend a little podium and look down on this model. And he talks about how from this one single viewpoint, gazing down at a mountain here, a lake here, um, a settlement there, um, you gain in one sweep of the eye um, an all-encompassing view, and that is the point at which you understand the Alps. And he says that when he writes his guide to the lakes, that's what he wants to give the visitor. He wants to give the visitor the same thing, but in textual form. Now, it seems to me that from this sprang, uh, spring, sprang, and continues to spring a very distinctive way of thinking about landscape archaeology, um, a way that, for me anyway, has been profoundly influenced by Romanticism. Now, as many of you will be aware, you go to the library, if you look up um, Romantic philosophy, there are literally hundreds of books on Romantic philosophy, on Romantic literary criticism, and, and, and so on. And I'm going to refer to some of the ideas within literary critiques of Romanticism a little later on in my talk. But I want to think about Romanticism here as a kind of field practice, a kind of way of looking at and thinking about landscape that was taken up by a subsequent generation of archaeologists. Um, the first thing that Wordsworth emphasizes is walking. He's, uh, he, he's, he's, he's interested in bodily movement. It's, it's said that he, he walked many thousands of miles over the course of his life, usually with his sister Dorothy um, with him, or on the best a few paces behind him. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's a, a romantic view stresses bodily movement across landscapes, and a movement that takes you up to a point from which you look down onto this landscape. And what do you see when you're at this panoramic position looking down? Well, the first thing you see are the traces of your ancestors, a series of Wordsworth's poems and, and a lot of the passages of, of, of his Guide to the Lakes are concerned with his emotional link with the ancestors who are somehow embodied in the landscape around him. Um, but at the same time, um, actual human beings in the present are actually quite small. Um, they are uh, depicted in this view from above as, as, as very tiny ant-like figures scur scurrying around. What is important is the beauty and grandeur of the landscape itself. And the way you understand this landscape then is aesthetically and emotionally. Um, and you do it on your own. 
it's, there's, there's a very strong stress within, within romantic field practice on the solitary figure, lonely as a cloud. And feminist literary critics have talked about this figure and, and, and discussed the ways in which this figure is actually gendered. It's, it's, it's a male figure and have pointed out that particularly in terms of Dorothy, this, this is a problematic view of, of, of how we actually engage in, in landscape. It's also, in, um, uh, people have pointed out, a socially restricted figure. There is a tension within Wordsworth's romanticism. On the one hand, Wordsworth tries to write, and I quote, ordinary language, the speech really spoken by men, his words. Um, but um, at the same time, he implies that you need a very careful training and you need to be uh, from a particular social class in order to properly appreciate what you're looking at in that landscape. So um, there's a tension within Wordsworth. On the one hand, he wants everybody to enjoy the Lake District. He wants um, everybody to buy his guidebook and, and walk around the Lake District with it in his hands. On the other hand, he campaigns actively against the building of a railway into the Lake District on the grounds, uh, on several grounds, one of which is that it will lead to inundations of common folk into this landscape, destroying his peace and his solitude. We're going to see all these tensions coming up again when we look at a later generation of British archaeologists. The most fundamental element of field practice that, that I think is, is within, embedded in Romanticism is, is an empiricism. Um, de Salincourt writes that it became with words as an in instinct a judge of a natural scene in the light of an artistic composition in which you gather up what you're looking at. You look out over this landscape, make very careful observations of what you're seeing, but then somehow you just gather this up into your heart and it becomes a poem. So those of us here who are trained in, in archaeology and in archaeological theory will, will be aware of the problem here that um, gathering up data is all very well, um, but um, it doesn't then automatically and of itself produce an interpretation. And that, of course, is the point of departure for all, all different strands of, of archaeological theory. So um, embedded in this romanticism, I would argue, is, is, is a kind of empiricism in which the data are held to speak for themselves, when actually we don't. What we're going to find um, when I get to the end of the lecture is that this, this empiricism is going to come back and, and, and haunt us. Now, one can trace the link between um, the romanticism of Wordsworth and the romanticism of the present in, in many different ways. I'm going to for fast forward to the work of a landscape historian, not a trained archaeologist, historian, W.G. Hoskins, um, who was writing in the middle of the 20th century. Now, um, the link between Hoskins and, and Wordsworth doesn't come through a, a number of interim phases, I, I believe. Um, if you actually read Hoskins's books, um, virtually every second sentence is a direct quotation from an, or an allusion to Wordsworth. Um, uh, Hoskins is, 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 is very deeply imbued in, in the Wordsworthian tradition to the extent that page one of his, his most famous book, um, The Making of the English Landscape, which is the book on the left here, actually starts off with a statement, and I quote, poets make the best topographers. Um, and it goes on to quote um, Wordsworth looking out, uh, uh, quotes lines from, from, from Tintin Abbey. 
So um, Hoskins um, borrows his, his way of thinking about the landscape very much from, um, fr from Wordsworth. Now, Hoskins' achievement in his two key books, uh, The Making of the English Landscape on the left, published in 1955, um, Devon on the right, published around about the same time, which is a gazetteer to the county. As you walk around, you can read each entry um, uh, for village by village. Um, Hoskins' achievement in this book, published in the 1950s, was to emphasize two things about the English landscape. Firstly, he emphasized that it was a lot older than we thought. And secondly, he, he emphasized that you could pick it apart rationally. If you could take the technique that I've already described to you, of walking around the landscape, uh, map in one hand, um, um, textual sources in the other. And if you looked carefully, you could piece together the history of that landscape from, from, from what, you, from what you, you saw around you. So Hoskins is, is at the very least popularizing this tradition. There's a big debate about the extent to which Wordsworth is borrowing from other people. But um, the, in, the influence of this book cannot be overestimated on subsequent generations. Um, if you go into any second-hand bookshop in England, indeed many second-hand bookshops in this country, you will find multiple copies of this, this book. It, it defines the way that a generation thought about um, things. Now, for Hoskins, the, the final end was, was actually an aesthetic one, again, drawing directly from, 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 um, from Romanticism. Um, he said that you're looking at the English landscape, and he, he, he uses various metaphors. This is one of the most interesting ones. He defines it in terms of being a symphony. Um, and he makes the point that in order to aesthetically appreciate the symphony, you have to analyze it um, with, with a fair degree of expertise. Um, you have to isolate the different themes as they, they come in. He goes on to say, incidentally, that his personal favorite landscapes are not the grand, sublime la landscapes of the Lake District, or indeed the grand, sublime landscapes of the New World. He um, sees the best landscapes as being small-scale and local, the, the, the landscapes of Rutland, which is the smallest county in England. And he says the reason for this is that uh, chamber music can be just as profound as a symphony. So um, he, he extends this, this metaphor. Hoskins is borrowing a lot of his ideas from um, this man, an archaeologist, O.G.S. Crawford, who, um, uh, and, and the, the, both Hoskins and Crawford corresponded very extensively during the 1940s and the 1950s. Now, um, Crawford um, outlined many of the elements of, 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 uh, of, of, of landscape archaeology in this way. And both the governing meta, another governing metaphor for Hoskins, and, and one that he, he, I would argue, is actually borrowing from, from Crawford, is that of the palimpsest. The idea that you have a document that's been written on over and over again, erased, written, erased, written, erased, written, and that you can see the landscape in this way and, and read it in this way. And again, I would argue that the, the link here with, with Romanticism is very clear. What Wordsworth is about turning landscapes into texts or poems. Um, Crawford and Hoskins are interested in reading the landscape. 
And again, there is a problem with empiricism here because it's very, uh, it's, it's a very powerful metaphor. But the issue remains: once you've translated the words, what do the words actually mean? What's the methodology by which you 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 get to this? It's worth noting as well that um, Crawford's analogy of the palimpsest works particularly well with the sort of landscapes he was he was looking at. Um, Crawford actually, um, in many ways, was Barry Cunliffe's predecessor. He, he lived in Southampton. Um, he was working on the Wessex landscape, the landscape of Stonehenge and Avebury in the southwest of England. One of the distinctive things about this landscape is that it's chalk. It has a chalk um, um, a substratum on top of which is a, a fairly thin layer of, of, of earth and, and, and turf. Um, and the result of this is that you get, as you can see in the picture here, very strongly and sharply defined linear features which intersect and from which you can then infer stratigraphy and, and, and a whole series of, make a whole series of other inferences. So Crawford is using this, this, this landscape very, very... Um, uh, this, uh, for me, Crawford wouldn't have been Crawford if he wasn't actually working in this landscape. This is how Crawford defines the method that he and Hoskins were using. Um, first of all, you study the, the maps. Um, you get to know the very earliest maps. Within this method, you, you work backwards. Um, you start with the most recent things, the modern maps. You move back to the 19th century maps. You move back and back and back. And then his words, you explore by book and by foot. Um, gradually acquiring an ability to read some parts, at least of the palimpsest. And again, then, just as Wordsworth uh, views walking as absolutely central, here exploring by foot is, is absolutely central. Um, uh, Hoskins writes um, on the back cover of one of his books, his favourite hobby is exploring England on foot, uh, and he reckons to make one discovery a week. For Crawford, the metaphor that's used is muddy boots. Um, if there's one object of derision for Crawford, it's what he calls the, the clean-booted historian. Um, and he, he, he writes derisively about historians, he writes derisively about classicists, he, well, he, in fact, he writes derisively about a whole series of different, anybody who's not like himself, really. Um, um, and... Um, uh, for, for Crawford, the field experience, getting your boots muddy is absolutely central. And he writes, uh, as you can see, the programme I've just described assumes that one has plenty of time to devote to a region um, that may comprise no more than two or three parishes. So again, this intensely particularistic exercise, perhaps more adapted to a permanent resident than a temporary visitor. And indeed, he goes on and says that this is, and I quote, a peculiarly English form of sport... The reason being, and I quote, that England has persons of means, leisure and intelligence living in the countryside. Um, so he's, he's defining it particularly in terms, of, in, terms of, in terms of the English landscape. I will say that one very important practical feature here that's again for me has been underemphasized is, is a question of scale. From his house in Southampton, Crawford could be in the Wessex landscape in half an hour. Um, today, um, one can travel from, from, um, from town to Stonehenge uh, in an hour, from town to, to, to Avebury in two hours. So this constant shuttling backwards and forwards and the proximity of what you're looking at, the idea you can go backwards and forwards, is again a very important practical feature here, which, which I think need, needs to be emphasised. Okay. So, Hoskins and Crawford then um, defined a very powerful method for doing archaeology, and you'll have noticed 
that excavation played little or no part in this. Um, it became popular, it became successful, it became embedded in the consciousness, not just of professional archaeologists, but of um, uh, the um, middle classes as a whole, um, people who visited the countryside as a whole. And I suggest that its power derived from three things. Three things acted to take this, this idea of how to do archaeology and embedded it into the landscape. Um, these three things were the map, the air photograph, and um, the study of place names. If we take each in turn, um, like most European countries, um, England has a very well-defined series of um, maps done at the scale of one inch to a mile. Um, it has an extensive system of rights away across the landscape. And there was a ready market for these maps. Um, uh, some of the, the, the covers to these maps um, themselves are really important pieces of, of art and have histories of themselves. But here you see two of, two of the early ones. These, these are Ordnance Survey maps designed for walkers. Um, you can see the gentleman on the, um, on, on, on the right here. Um, uh, smoking a pipe and think, think, looking, look, looking again down on the landscape, thinking about where he's, he's going, to, going to go next. So the first of these tools was the map, um, which was readily available to people. And as I said, you can still see this in the landscape um, today. Um, here's how Hoskins uses the map. And this is a, a classic where a method of argument within uh, the romantic tradition of landscape archaeology. You put up a piece of the, the six-inch map, you invite people to look at the, the road system, the church, the different features on it, and you tell a little story about it. So here is Thorverton, a village of Saxon foundation, settled, Hoskins tells us, in the seventh century. The original nucleus was the large rectangular open space beside the stream, and so he goes on. So you come away from reading his book with two things from this. One is a little story, a little anecdote about how this landscape works. And you also come away with a guide to how, you, how to read your, your own landscape. The second um, artifact then is the air photograph. One of the things that very few people um, mention about air photographs is that, um, is that they're very beautiful. Um, they're tremendous fun to look at. Um, Hoskins and Crawford both um, worked with their photographs. Crawford particularly, um, Crawford actually um, spent uh, much of the First World War um, taking photographs of um, German gum emplacements from his aircraft, and indeed he had the misfortune to suffer engine failure over enemy lines and spent the last year of the war in a German POW camp. Um, he subsequently um, became an avid flyer and spent, and his best early book is actually entitled Wessex from the Air and is a collection of air photographs. And I'm going to show you one of these in a second. This is not one of them, but it shows you how you use the air photograph to tell a story. Um, this is actually from the work of Harry Thorpe a little later on, but what Thorpe does is he publishes a key, a code to the map, which you can see on one side here. Uh, so from the from the um, uh, the air photograph, you can see the church, the fish ponds, the old manor site, and you can work out a sequence. So, for example, with the manor site, you have a canal actually slicing through it here, 
and again this canal slices through this double ditch in the hedge that runs across from this on one side. Now we'll notice with this map we would we could look at this in detail, Clark and I have done uh, for, for some for quite some time, but notice the way in which it tells a story. Again, the story in this case is implicitly about a medieval village in this area. It's about the abandonment of that medieval village. And the final phase of it, the Oxford Canal, is about industrialization. So there's a story implicit in this that, that, that we're going to come back to um, when we talk a bit more about Hoskins. The third element is, is that of place names. Um, a very, and again, like the air photograph and like the air map, a very little learning can enable the, the amateur to use place names to, um, to, to understand and give meaning to the landscape that they're walking through. So here, for example, uh, is a typical toponymic place name, um, Don, Den or, or, or Den, which refers to um, a settlement um, at the at the end at the end of a valley in different different locations, but people went went further than that and um, identified place names with particular ethnic um, with particular migrations and invasions or with particular ethnicities. So, for example, the place name Ham is Anglo-Saxon. Ingham is supposed to be um, uh, relatively early from the first phase of Anglo-Saxon settlement. A more uh, um, a more um, famous example, Hampstead there. I've put in a couple of Scandinavian ones, uh, Ibthorpe and Swainsby. These again are held to be, to be symptomatic of, of, of settlement from, from the Viking Age. And finally one, a Norman French one, Bewley, um, which, which, which is, is held to date from the, from, from the Norman invasion. So again, place names with relatively little expertise could lead uh, archaeologists, both amateur and professional, to begin to understand what they're looking at without the need for excavation with simply um, an ordnance survey map um, and, uh, and, and walking across the landscape. The problem though again being what did this actually mean? Now I would argue that implicit within what Crawford was doing Crawford was interested in general and comparative questions, and Crawford was interested, um, he was indeed worried about the question of what these features that he was recording actually meant. So um, Crawford um, did not simply work in England, he worked across the world, and he was interesting as, as he went across the world in looking at correlates from modern material culture and modern landscapes for the features he was seeing in the English landscape. And, and I would argue this implicit within this is, is this concern with pattern and process. So for him, for example, near Marlborough, this is again two hours drive from, from Southampton, um, he records, um, uh, and this is from his book, uh, Archaeology in the Fields, traffic, um, traffic ruts. And, but he pairs this photograph with this one, um, which he's, he's seen in his, his travels in, in Western Asia, um, the road south of Chirac, an example of a Holloway actually in use and still forming. So Crawford is interested, and indeed places at centre stage this question of what are the processes that are actually creating this landscape. 
But the interesting thing about Crawford is however much he insisted this and however much Crawford himself was um, 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 outlined his project in very, very rational terms, his work was, instant, was very quickly taken up and recast in, in a romantic frame by the general public and, and, and by, by romantic artists in particular. Um, there is a, fan, um, a fantastic new biography of Crawford entitled Bloody Old Britain, which um, brings out a, a number of features about Crawford's work in particular. Um, this is written by Kitty Hauser. Um, it brings out in particular his relationship with neo-romantic artists. Um, Crawford didn't like artists, as we've seen, he didn't like anybody very much. Um, and, um, but artists found in his work a tremendous source of power and inspiration. Um, Neo-romantic artists um, working in the 30s and the 40s, particularly, and, and through into the 50s, um, firstly were, were fascinated both by the English landscape and also by archaeological features in the landscape, such as the Long Man of Wilmington on the right there. Um, Eric Revillius, for example, but many other romantic artists were also particularly interested in the same landscapes that Crawford was for the same reasons, that they had this chalk subsoil, there were these very strong linear features in them, uh, and these, these appear to tell a, tell, a, tell, a, tell a story. Artists were similarly fascinated with the concept of the air photograph and what, um, what you could see in an air photograph, uh, the clues that were in there somehow embedded within it. So, so the artist Alan Sorrell, for example, um, go, went on to be commissioned to produce um, the standard reconstruction drawings for, um, for, for the Ministry of Works, um, a body roughly parallel to the National Park Service here. So, um, so this is very strongly within this. Now, um, as I said, Crawford and, and the Romantic Arts had, had a troubled relationship, and there's one story that Kitty Hauser tells in particular that really, really sums this up. Crawford needed a ride. He needs to get from Southampton up to Marlborough. Um, and um, he was offered on the ride. He was offered a ride by, by uh, the Nashes. Uh, Crawford knew who the Nashes were. He really didn't want to go with them, but it was the only way he could get to Marlborough. So um, he got in their car, and as they travelled through the English landscape, um, Crawford felt that he really had to um, pay for his ride. And the way he was going to uh, pay for his ride was by explaining to the Nashes what they were looking at. So as they drove through the landscapes, they, they did the, what, what I have done many, many times. They said, oh yes, over on the left there you'll see an old church. There's actually fragments of an Anglo-Saxon um, uh, nave in it. Um, on the right there, there's a couple of round barrows, but you'll see there's a Roman road that runs past them as well. Um, and for what, for what Crawford was doing, he thought, was simply explaining what was there. For him, it was a rational process. It was a matter of decoding the air photographs that he knew very well. But for the Nashes, this was a, 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 a moment of enlightenment for them. It was a, 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 they, it was a mystical experience. They came away from that ride thinking that, feeling, thinking that Crawford was a mystic or a magician, somebody who could see things that other people, ordinary people, just couldn't see.
And this had a tremendous influence on the Nashes in particular and mm -hmm. on the generation of artists influenced by the Nashes um, and drew them to work with these, 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 these Wessex landscapes in, in various ways. Um, my favourite um, painting of all time is actually partly draws on this tradition. This is um, Nash's Battle of Britain, 1941, painted in part as, as, as a piece of propaganda um, at Nash works during the war, as, as indeed many neo-romantic artists did um, for, for the British government. Um, but you can see on it uh, several different romantic influences coming in here. I'll just pick out two. The first is the way the sky alludes back to the skies of Constable and Gainsborough and other romantic artists at the time of, of Wordsworth and later. Um, secondly, um, the, um, the ground, the, the, the ground you can see at, at the bottom of the picture is um, uh, borrows motifs and, um, and, and features. Um, from, uh, uh, among other things, air photographs. And indeed, um, the use, uh, Nash was worried about the air use of air photographs in this, in this picture, and he, he uh, sought clearance. He was very, so worried about it, he sought clearance from the government censor before putting this piece of work on display on the grounds that the Nazis could copy it and actually use the features there as a guide to a possible invasion of, of southern Britain. So um, here Nash is responding to what for Crawford is a very rational message, but they're responding in a very romantic way. This spills over into, into film as well. Um, Powell and Pressburger um, uh, uh, again are employed during the war to, to, make, to make propaganda films of different kinds. One of their strangest films um, is A Canterbury Tale. The Canterbury Tale has an archaeologist at the centre of the plot. Um, this is a film about, um, about the Pilgrim's Road to Canterbury. And um, the subtitle of the film is actually What We Are Fighting For. And the argument of the film is, is to argue for a mystical vision of an old England, which is, again, understood by the archaeologist who you can see here talking to a young woman on the right and sitting in his study on, on the top left. Now, I don't want to give the end of the film away, but again, the, the archaeologist here is, is presented as somebody who has access to knowledge or power that ordinary people just, just don't have. And it, somebody who sees himself as very rational it actually comes out of this in, in a very mystical way. Interestingly, one of the central characters, in the, uh, it, it, this was set around the Canterbury landscape at the time of and uh, preparations for the D-Day landings. And one of the propaganda purposes of the film was to emphasize that the American GIs who were stationed at landscape and the British soldiers were part of what it saw as a common Anglo-Saxon cultural heritage. So it's a fascinating film for all sorts of reasons. So what we've seen is how for romantic artists and indeed filmmakers, ideas of romanticism become embedded in their approach to archaeology. So I now want to take a slightly different tack and look at the way in which the story that Crawford, but particularly Hoskins, was telling was itself a romantic story. I said that the problem with romanticism was that it had this empiricism at, the, at its core. You just gather the data up and became, becomes a poem, or it becomes a text. Now, for Hoskins, did, this didn't matter. 
And it didn't matter because he already knew the story he wanted to tell. He wanted to tell a story about modernity. And he wanted to tell uh, a story that, again, is, is a classic romantic story, a, cl a story of decline, a story of melancholia, a, 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 the story of destruction of, of a, a certain kind of, of authenticity, authentic way of life in the face of um, the, uh, in the face of the modern world. One of Hoskins's pet hates was actually the motor car. Um, Hoskins never learned to drive. He always got his boss, um, the dean at, at Leicester, um, a guy called Attenborough, to, he got his boss to drive him around the countryside and, and, and Attenborough actually took the photos. Um, and in, in one of his texts, he, he describes um, being pushed aside by the motorist with the death wish in his eyes. So, he, he, so what, where, where Wordsworth is, is condemning the railways, for um, Hoskins, um, uh, th th he's condemning the motor car. Now, Hoskins wraps this story of decline up in a story about his ancestors. He says that his ancestors are men and women of no particular eminence, just like his landscapes. He likes gently rolling landscapes. He likes ancestors of no particular eminence. Farmers, nearly all of them, um, until they've driven off the land and across the water to the American continent. This, incidentally, is the, the only... One, only one of two references to the New World I've ever found in Hoskins's writings. Um, the other one is when he says, who could bear to live in a country that's only 200 years old, let alone bear to die in it? Um, which tells you all sorts of interesting things about his, his knowledge of the New World, about his understanding of indigenous traditions and so on. But um, that's what he says. But they're the sort of people who form the foundations of any stable society. I'm going to come back to this quote at the very end. In his notebooks, he, 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 he takes this idea of the ancestors and, 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 and talks about it again in this atmosphere of decline. The old peasant tradition where men and women were at home in the world, they took care of a few fundamental things, family, neighbours, and gradually we see the attachments being loosened. It's the story of desertion that we saw in the air photograph excuse me, that I, I showed you before. Now, this was a romantic story, and it was a very familiar story. Um, it was one that had been told a generation earlier um, by J.R.R. Tolkien um, in The Lord of the Rings. Um, Tolkien, of course, um, was thinking of the First World War, and when he talks about the hobbits um, defeating evil and coming back to Hobbiton, he's thinking of the experience of, um, of, 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 of soldiers coming back from the First World War, having won the victory and finding an England that had been changed and, and transformed. One of the unforgivable things about the film is they leave that particular episode out. So, um, so it's, it's a story that, that, that this is told in, in, in many, many different ways. And again, it's a story that isn't just told, but it's a story that um, was, was, was inscribed into the guidebooks um, of the period. Um, uh, I mentioned um, this tension within romanticism between the solitary individual and uh, hating the masses, and on the other hand, the need for popular appeal. Hoskins actually got a lot of his message about the English landscape across in a series of books uh, sponsored by the company Shell. Um, in other words, a petrol, a gas company. Um, and um, 
many of the motor cars he hated so much were actually being driven into this countryside by families um, clutching, clutching the shell guides in their hand. So there's, there's a tension and ambiguity there that runs, I think, to the core of, core of romanticism. Now, the story that Hoskins told, um, as I said, it can't be overemphasised its, its impact. And the way in which the English landscape then became um, uh, central to English identity and to ways of thinking about the world, again, cannot be overemphasised. Other scholars have talked about a scenic nationalism. Um, which you can see here, this is a, another, this is a World War II propaganda poster, um, Your Britain, fight for it now. So you're actually being invited by this poster to, to fight and possibly to die for a landscape, which is an interesting concept. Um, the landscape had been part or had been central to notions of Englishness for some time. In the 1930s, um, uh, the Kinder Mass Trespass had focused and crystallised um, uh, the question of who owns this landscape and who had rights over it. This is where hundreds of working class people um, walked across um, Kinder Scout, a fell um, in, um, uh, in, in Derbyshire, um, in opposition to the local landowner and actually won the right to walk across, across this, this landscape. So, again, as with other traditions of English Romanticism, there is this, this emphasis on ordinary folk and the mass experience. And this, gets in, the, the, this, this, this emphasis on, on populism um, becomes increasingly the case after the Second World War, particularly in the 1950s and the rise of affluence. Uh, families, ordinary families, can afford a motor car for the first time. So, um, and with the motor car comes the idea of a weekend trip to the country. Now, when these ordinary people arrive in the countryside, they are told how to think. They take with them guidebooks, such as this one. This is a pictorial history of English architecture by the poet laureate, in other words, the official poet to the king and queen, uh, John Betjeman. So Betjeman is writing poems about the English landscape, his most famous being Come Friendly Bombs and Fall on Slough, um, because Slough is modern and horrible. Um, but at the same time, he's writing about architecture and he's telling you what buildings are in good taste and which buildings are in bad taste. This is taken further by um, related writers, particularly the author of the book on the right here, Nicholas Pevsner. Um, Pevsner uh, was a German emigre in the 1930s of Jewish descent um, who... Uh, wrote a series of didactic books about architecture, again, very much about what good architecture was and what bad architecture was, um, which um, were exceptionally popular in terms of radio broadcasts. Uh, Pevson, when Pevsner wasn't broadcasting on the, on the radio, Hoskins was. Both of them had a lot of their influence through these radio broadcasts. Um, but Pevsner went further. He published a county-by-county county guide to um, what he hoped was every significant building in the country. And these books still exist today. I own maybe 15 or 20 of them. And uh, the way they are used is 
in is among other things to control and to limit taste. Um, you take one of these books, you take it with you into the countryside, you walk through the countryside, you come across a big house, you open Pevsner, or you come across a church, you open Pevsner, and Pevsner tells you what to think about it. He tells you this one's good, that one's bad, you should appreciate this one, you shouldn't think very much of, of this, this other one. So what's going on, I'm arguing, in the 1950s? Um, the argument I'm making here is that in terms of popular culture and in terms of intellectual life, the Hoskins-Crawford um, idea of understanding the landscape, and behind that a romantic idea of the landscape, is becoming very, very deeply inscribed into the way that people, both intellectuals and others, think about that landscape. And it's becoming inscribed not just through the writing of books, but through field habits of, of many different kinds, even down to what happens at the end of your country walk when you sit in the pub and you discuss what you're, what you're actually looking at. Now, why is this important for us as archaeologists? This is all very well. Well, I suggest that what happened um, subsequently was a divergence that um, in the 1950s then, the practice of landscape archaeology, and more broadly the practice of landscape history, became very deeply inscribed as both an amateur and a professional pursuit. To that point, prehistory and history diverged. Um, the study of prehistoric monuments such as Stonehenge, this is another of Alan Sorrell's pictures, by the way, um, uh, went on to talk about social questions. On the other hand, the study of historic landscapes, that is um, uh, medieval, post-medieval landscapes, Roman landscapes that I won't talk about, um, uh, stayed with telling stories about the familiar. The recognition, for example, that there were um, very extensive prehistoric field systems that still survived and still ran across much of the English landscape was a major insight that can be directly traced back to the Hoskins-Crawford tradition, and it can be directly traced forward to the new archaeology and to processual archaeology. Hoskins-Crawford tradition showed that these things were there. Once it was established they were there, the question then is, well, who built these? What kind of social formation created these, these very wide, large-scale systems? What does this uh, tell us socially? What kind of social inferences can we draw from these? Um, are these the products of a chieftain society? What do we mean by that kind of term? And so on. So prehistory then becomes very much engaged with the processual concerns of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. What's happened in historic landscape seems to me rather different. And, uh, and, uh, and, 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 and did not unfold in the same way. Rather than use the observations of these landscapes to explore new social questions, these landscapes had already been co-opted into the romantic vision. So, for example, the slide I've already shown you, um, this is a slide which tells you a story about desertion and abandonment and about the origins of the industrial and agricultural revolutions. That was 
then co-opted to tell a story that was already known, or in inverted commas, already known. It was already known through the documents. Hoskins's story of the abandon of abandonment and loss. So, whereas prehistory moved on to new and I would argue more exciting questions, historic landscape archaeology, in my view, ten, uh, simply revolved around around a set of questions that were pre-existing. Now, this meant, I think, that uh, when you get into the 70s and 80s, that um, people were telling the same stories. But also, it became worse than that, though they had less and less confidence in telling those stories. I can give many different examples of this, but let me just go back to place names and the way in which place names um, developed. I showed you this slide earlier. I told you that these particular place names could be associated with particular ethnic groups. Well, inevitably, that's actually a lot more problematic than it looks. You, um, a, a place name of, uh, let's say, from, from the Viking Age, this does not necessarily mean that there was no settlement there before. Um, Viking Age place names, again, very often date from the 12th century or, or later, it's been shown. So the sort of confident assertions that could be made about waves of settlement, um, our, our confidence in being able to make them became more and more eroded. Um, just as in archaeology, generally, we've become less and less confident at drawing easy social or economic inferences from the evidence. Nowhere, for me, has, has this problem or this issue been, been, been more apparent than in the study of the origins of medieval villages. Um, there are literally thousands of sites like these. Some of them, one on the right, are still occupied today. Probably two out of three are still occupied today. Some of them, like the one on the left, were subsequently um, deserted and abandoned. Very simple archaeological question. Why were they founded? And why particularly do you find them in some areas of England rather than others? Um, over the decades, there have been a series of projects trying to attack this question. And the general way they've, it seems to me they've worked is, is by the assumption that by surveying more of them and excavating more of them, we'll find out the answer. Back to Wordsworth, back to Hoskins, tramp across the landscape enough, record these sites, gather up enough data, and you'll get the answer. And so yet, we haven't found the answer yet. Why? Because you excavate one of these sites, you come out at the bottom layer, you have your sequence, but that tells you nothing in and of itself about process. It tells you nothing in and of itself about the, the underlying dynamics. In fact, I think the answer to this question um, lies in... Um, a, 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 those of you who, who know my early work will be surprised to hear me say this, perhaps. I think the answer to this question lies in the gen generalising and comparative approach to the question of settlement nucleation and um, a, a, a thinking about particularly the question of social power in these landscapes in a comparative way, building indeed on many of the things that the director has, has published. So, some rather negative <laughs> conclusions. Um, interpretive studies of landscape originate, I think, in the Hoskins Crawford tradition. If you want to understand that tradition, you have to look at the social intellectual context of post-war Britain, and you have to look back to a very deep underlying discursive formation, um, which is about English romanticism 
and Wordsworth particularly. And I, th I think this is particularly important. If there's one question I've been asked more than anything else since I've come here is, why do you Brits see landscape the way you do? Why are you into phenomenology and all these other fashionable theories? And my answer, I hope I've, I've indicated to you, that there are a number of very deep features to um, in, uh, deep intellectual assumptions um, patterns of work, patterns of field experience going on that make these kinds of approaches um, uh, very, very appealing. What I've also tried to argue is that for an archaeology of historical periods, um, this has tremendous emotive power and tremendous pedagogical power. There is no better way to teach students than to walk them across landscape like this. But underneath it, there is an underlying empiricism that's, that's problematic. Now, what I want to do just very briefly in conclusion is just, um, I'm very aware that that's a terribly negative point at which to finish. What I want to do that in conclusion is just indicate very briefly some ways in which we might attack this question and the ways in which we might move forward. The first thing is, quite clearly, this is such a, a deep underlying discourse, it's impossible to just get up and walk away from it. But I think there are two ways of, of beginning to try and uh, attack the question. The first way, as I've already indicated in terms of medieval villages, is to try and develop um, a top-down approach. That is, uh, to clarify, think about um, uh, general and comparative principles that are working across landscapes of these kinds, and to try and think about these, the, 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 the question of settlement nucleation in terms of a comparative archaeology of early state societies. Um, and I would extend that to later periods. Um, I would um, argue again that when you get into later historical archaeology, thinking, for example, about enclosure, about the abandonment of medieval field systems, the creation of new uh, kinds of field system, that the way into that question, it, it seems to me in increasingly, is to think about it at, at a larger scale. So on the one hand, I think there are top-down approaches, if you like, that, that offer a, a way forward. At the same time, I think there's a suite of bottom-up approaches. I think we need to return to my original observation about Wordsworth, that people somehow get put into the background in these, in these studies. That somehow in, in, in talking about the churches and the, um, and the fields and the distant view, the prospects from above, the realities of human actions in this landscape um, become pushed to the background. And I th it seems to me further that this is actually one of the things that archaeologists we're very good at. Um, we still are unsure of the date at which Warren Percy was laid out with that, that grid that I showed you. But what we do know about is where the trackways were, we know the, where the peasants, uh, where, where men and women walked, um, uh, 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 where their houses were, how their houses were organised internally and so on. It seems to me that an agent-centred approach, or one that actually talks in very simple, direct ways about what people were doing, when they were doing it, how the lives of houses intersected with the lives of fields, is again one way forward from this. The final thing I'd say is that there is an ethical and political dimension to everything I've said, to state the obvious. Um, and I just want to return to this in, in, in concluding. Um, and bring us back to Hoskins's quote about his ancestors. Um, Hoskins, as I said, is, is drawing on this, this, this romantic notion of ancestry. He 
his ancestors, the men and women who, in his view, who are his lineal descendants, um, but were, and I quote, the sort of people who form the foundation of any stable society. What I've tried to indicate today is that the, there is, um, that intellectually and um, in terms of the sort of archaeology that we want to write, that for me is very problematic. It holds tremendous appeal, but there are a series of problems with it. So I think we need to think about it very, very carefully. But I think those problems are as much um, ethical and political in nature as they are anything else. Because there are people who are British who do not have ancestors who have been rooted for millennia in the soil. These two images are taken from a recent English Heritage publication, Power of Place. The image on the right here is, is very much Hoskins' is England, um, the church, the village. Uh, and yet, English Heritage chose to place in the front cover the image on the left, which is a street scene from Brixton, in which probably none of the people you're looking at um, have, have Hoskins's claim wish to have Constance's claim to, to, to being rooted for millennia in the soil. Now, this wouldn't be a problem if it weren't that their claim to British citizen is no better, citizenship is no better or worse than anybody else. So for me, ultimately, everything that I'm talking about today hasn't just been about producing a better sort of archaeology. It's also about addressing some of the issues that, um, as archaeologists, both in Britain and North America, we have in taking our work and um, engaging with questions of, of citizenship, of heritage, and of identity. Thank you very much. Fantastic talk. Uh, I, could I start with an observation and then, a, and then a question? It's 50 years this year since the publication The Flight of Icarus by Kevin Andrews, the American archaeologist who lived in Morea, who lived at the American School of Athens, actually, uh, with which this institution has long been associated. And in it, he begins by saying he has no idea why he won the scholarship. Uh, he had no idea what he was doing in Rome with all these boring in Athens with all these boring archaeologists. Uh, and what he had to do was get out and walk across the landscape. And that all the school and all the people in the school found it so odd that he did that as an archaeologist, coming to terms with Greece, and in particular with medieval Greece, writing the castles of Morea. And the, it harkens back in reading that, because it's the 50th anniversary of that particular famous book, it harkens back in this observation to when I was working on archives on British archaeologists in the Mediterranean, they always were amazed that the Americans always drove everywhere in the 1920s and 30s and 40s when their tutors made them walk. Uh, they had to actually go out and walk across the landscape and get to know it. And there's a, uh, there's a great many illustrations that come from that. So from, from this institution's point of view, that is an interesting uh, parallel. What I wanted to ask you is a question because obviously I've worked a little bit on this subject, is don't you think the difference between those who've studied British prehistory, like you showed Andrew Fleming's work, which is drawn entirely from the work in particular in the Mississippi, I, I worked with Andrew Fleming, I was a colleague of his, 
drawn from lots of studies of Mesoamerica, of, of the Mississippian culture and so forth. Don't, don't you think that his, on the one hand, is, a very, is very much a new archaeology based on, on a world that has no Englishness, on the one hand, and the moment we speak English, that is, we become Anglo-Saxons, we speak English, we cannot be anything but English. So we have this, this almost unassailable history, which frankly, from my point of view, and I've published lots of times, is a pure myth, but anyway, it is regarded by most archaeologists as absolutely, absolutely the Bible. You can't touch that archaeology. And so Andrew Fleming, when he gets to touch, when he gets as a landscape archaeologist, or Colin Renfrew, when he comes as, to talk as an archaeologist and not as a prehistorian, or Ian Hodder, there's another one, uh, when they get into the historic periods, they go with the myth, the national myth, because we speak English and therefore it's grown up in that particular way. In other words, we are still, all of us, reinforcing those, those ideas that Hoskins had in the 1950s and indeed scholars before Hoskins like, uh, uh, like Trevelyan had about our Englishness. There's a, something to put your teeth in. <laughs> um, I, I think that's right, but in a sense the, the case that I think proves the rule I would point to is, is the North American experience of archaeology and the, the very different approaches to landscape that you see for, with prehistoric archaeology on the one hand and scholars like J.V. Jackson and the, again the romantic tradition of, of Fred Kniffen uh, particularly, um, but also Glassie and Dietz on the other. So I would see that latter tradition as drawing, if you like, in black and white, what in, in an old world context is in, is in shades of grey. But yes, the, the, the moment this word Englishness comes in, there's all sorts of little triggers are set off. So I would agree with that, yes. You have other questions? Mm. Um, I, I think um, there are two things, that, to, to give a complete account would, would, would be a long thing, but so I point to two, two things um, uh, that are of relevance here. The first is that the debate over multiculturalism and the debate over who, who gets a stake in national identity is um, much more developed in Britain than it is in, in many of the continental European countries. Um, the reason for that being the particular experience of immigration from the Caribbean and from other places into Britain and, and the particular configuration of, 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 of the British Empire and so on. So that's the first critical difference I would point to. Talking to, um, I was recently at a conference mostly of geographers and historians which a lot of, I wouldn't say all, and I wouldn't, I think that would be to do, do them a grave injustice, but a lot of the continental European scholars, men and women who consider themselves to be liberal, claimed nevertheless that immigrant groups to their country had no stake in it, that they had no stake in the landscape and we didn't need to think about their kinds of landscapes when we were trying to put forward policy documents and, and, and so on. So that's the first, first difference I'd point to. The um, second difference I would point to is the nature, um, is the nature of the archaeological record. Uh, 
Um, the landscapes I've been showing you today have a relatively early history of enclosure. Um, in other words, a, a, an early end point to peasant agriculture. So particularly in, the, for example, the plains of North Germany and across much of France, you have landscapes that have been ploughed over and over and over again. So the approach I've given you here, where you have lots of linear features, um, all intersecting, where you don't really need to excavate before you can begin to tell stories, is the product of, of early enclosure and the turning of these areas over to, to pasture, so you don't get similar sorts of landscapes. So there are two critical differences. But in terms of similarities, um, I think that um, uh, it's I'd actually, I'll, I'll pass on that. The reason, not being that, <laughs> but because when you take it country after country after country, it is, it is, it is very um, difficult to, to, to disentangle. I'm just trying to think through the differences between the Italian approach and the French approach, for example, and that's, that's very difficult to generalize about. Well, the Italian approach has been hugely influenced mm. by the initial British interests mm. in the 1950s, and they've taken mm. it to far greater lengths using mm. GIS, of course, now. But, mm. but they were, they, their text is the making of the English landscape. Which, laid it, which was the design for the South of True mm. survey, which was equally the design for many of the major uh, mm. surveys by many American teams, mm. Messenia, for example, and Greece at the mm. same time. But it all comes back to Hoskins in a yes. funny sort of way. Yes. Perhaps on that note, Matthew, thank you very much, and we ought to do a, a, the true romantic thing as uh, archaeologists and go and consume a good deal of wine outside. A wonderful kaleidoscopic lecture, beautiful slides on this grey day. So I think we're much indebted to you for also a very eloquent argument. So thank you very much.